Amen. I think I'm recording on at least two different pieces of equipment. We went out and got all new stuff because the other stuff wasn't working. Now, all of you know these are available on the website, the VedantaDC.org website under lectures. Uh, the problem is that uh, our, our site is so well designed that to get to these lectures, you have to scroll roughly three and a half miles <laughs> to get all the way, because we just, we just keep listing them, and they've been listing now for almost a decade, and so I'm the junior swami, so they just kind of tacked me on the bottom when I moved in. So anything I say is way, way down there. Yes, I'll work. I'll work with you yes. uh, because also we've got video going, and we have video from the second and the third second lecture and today, and then the rest of them, so you can watch the the video. Make a what? Make a book out of these lectures. That that's. <laughs> Mother hasn't provided an M for me yet. <laughs> well, well, I, not, not, that's the first idea, time I've heard that idea. If you're inspired, <laughs> I can give you the notes. <laughs> All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see everyone back again. Uh, today's lecture uh, is one of my favorites one of my favorite things to talk about because this is where it really comes home. And uh, this, this is really what has gotten me interested in spiritual life, kept me interested in spiritual life, and has demonstrated to me the reality of these principles that we're teaching. Uh, we're going to talk about our personal practice. Last week we talked, well the first week we talked about what the general uh, condition of our life is, where we're stuck, why we're stuck here, why things look the way they look. And uh, basically, it's just our ego, you know, that, that we basically, the way I describe it uh, for my own self is God is kind of like a dish, dish cloth, right, a dish towel. And then you pinch each section, a bunch of little sections of that dish towel into a little, like a little nipple and put a rubber band around it. So that you've got a flat dish towel with all these little rubber banded nipples sticking up off of it. And each one of those nipples is a you and a me. And, uh, but we share the same fabric. We, we're, we're, we're of the same dish towel, but we're identifiably different. Uh, the scriptures, uh, the ancient scriptures talk about the ocean and its waves uh, instead of dish towels and its nipples. But uh, so the wave belongs to the ocean, the ocean doesn't belong to the wave. So that's why we can say that, that uh, you know, God is us, as it were, but we are not God because we attach an ego, a, a, a particular to that, and so we're not allowed to claim that office uh, until we abnegate that lower self that's based on the senses. Remember we talked about uh, in the Garden of Eden being a description of our continual state, that we step into the senses, we look at the world, it seems pleasing to us, that it seems like it's something that we need to be completed, so we go looking for husbands and wives, and we go looking for good vacations and you know fairy tale jobs, we're always grasping for something that's going to fix the moment, that's going to make this moment perfect for us. And uh, that's, that's our problem, that's our condition. Then last week we talked, uh, we, or not last week, the week before last, we kind of talked about the spiritual experience of some of these great sages, uh, their, what, what they've seen and what they've come to know of the divine through personal experience. It's not a matter of believing, it wasn't 
that they didn't inherit their ideas from their parents. They didn't start going to their church or their temple or their synagogue or their mosque for traditional ideas. The sages, the rishis, who, the people who write the scriptures, are experiencing these things firsthand. And all the religions, uh, all the traditions, are full of saints, people who have uh, had these experiences and talked about them, written about them. And so we talked about those last week. Today, we're going to talk about your experience and how you can touch these things and find them to be true. Uh, in, in, in Vedanta, which when I say Vedanta, I'm not meaning a particular thing. I'm talking about the umbrella of the one religion that all of us practice in different ways. In the Vedanta, they, they uh, are not so much interested in giving you beliefs. What you believe is really inconsequential uh, in the Vedanta. What you know, what you've experienced, what you've grokked. Do you know that? Anybody know that word, grok? <laughs> From stranger in a strange land. He found a word that we don't have in the English language, and that's to know something fully, like you've, because you've experienced it, you've touched it, you've tasted it, like drinking milk. You know, you're not, you're not just describing milk, you've tasted it, so you've imbibed it, you know what it is. And so he used the word grok for that. And Vedanta is all about groking. What you believe, up to you. What you think is true, up to you. What you find to be true, that's what we're interested in what you've discovered and what you've touched. So when we talk about, well, I'll, I guess I shouldn't jump too far ahead of myself here. I'll give my lecture in pieces. Uh, so this morning we're going to go through a way, and if, if this is beneath some of you, if you've already got your practices going and things going like that, I apologize, bear with me. Maybe you'll come up with some ideas though that you can share. Uh, uh, but th today we're going to talk about how to build a spiritual practice. What are the elements of a spiritual practice that are going to make it successful. And uh, to start with that, I'm going to talk about the three most important things. I, I used to always start all of my lectures with this, and then I just thought that maybe I was driving the point a little too deeply. <laughs> but the three most important things that, that I've found in, in at least my 50 years so far of spiritual life is, uh, number one, sincerity and earnestness in your spiritual practice. Uh, you have to be sincere and earnest. This, this has to be something that you're not doing out of fear or something that you're doing out of card-punching kind of thing. It's a heart situation. It's jumping in and being, being in your practice. So that's sincerity and earnestness. Earnestness was described to me as uh, you're earnest about the things that you do in your free time. When you're, when you're able to do anything else that you want, the things that you choose to do at that moment those are the things you're earnest about. So earnestness and sincerity in our practice is, is, is primary. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna, who taught that, uh, says that, it's, that if you are sincere and earnest, that God himself or herself will come in and take care of you. You know, that uh, if you walk out your front door, you might not know where the grocery store is, but if you're really looking and you just keep asking, you're going to get there. And uh, so it's like that. So God will take responsibility for you and bring you to where you need to be. Uh, the second one is very much like it uh, from Jesus. And actually not just from Jesus, but I, I read it first from Jesus. Uh, love. You know, uh, in, Christian, in the verses there, it talks about love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second most important commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. In the ancient scriptures, it's only one command, because your neighbor is your beloved. It is the manifestation of, of, of God. And so to, to love each other, to love 
everything, everyone without discrimination, without partiality. Uh, that's a necessary thing. It's what your nature is. When, 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 uh, when, you were, when you learned that you were created in the image of the beloved or image of God, that's what that means, that you are that stamp of love. That's why all of our art, really 98% of it anyway, is about love, about that emotion. All of our books, all of our novels, movies, songs, <laughs> we can't get enough of it. So that's the second. Uh, these are all equally important. I just can't say them all at once. The third one uh, is truth uh, in your practice. And uh, just like Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? <laughs> you know, how do we know what that is? We're talking about truth in a little bit of a different way when we say it in your practice, though. Truth uh, for us in, in a Vedanta practice is an alignment. It's an alignment between three very important things. What you think, what you say, and what you do. They should always be the same thing. That if you don't, if you don't grab that attribute or practice that attribute, uh, your spiritual life will just kind of, it'll be like treading water. You'll probably keep your head up, but you won't really go anywhere. You won't really uh, touch some of the more beautiful gems that are within you. So those three things are always fundamental for a practice. And they're part of the practice, you know, because they don't always come naturally, any one of them. Uh, and especially all three of them at the same time for us. Uh, but even if you have parts of any one or two or three of them and start, you know, just like going to the grocery store, walk out the door, start going, and then start asking, they'll develop. That's part of what the practice is about. It's about developing those aspects in the beginning and then sitting on those aspects and enjoying the beloved in the end is where it goes. So, now to officially start my notes. The world's oldest scripture that we have still, that we know of, is the Rig Veda. And it says in there that the human body is the temple of God. One who kindles the light of awareness within gets true light. The sacred flame of your inner shrine is constantly bright. The experience of unity is the fulfillment of human endeavor. The mysteries of life are revealed. So a nice little set of things there. And interestingly enough, you can find Jesus saying uh, almost every one of those things in the Gospels as well. This idea that, that your body is a temple, if, if you think about it, if you kind of just sit and practice, you become aware of that. You become aware of the fact that you're, you're, you're not this body. Uh, one of the ways that it really came to life for me is in 2008, I broke my leg. I, I dropped a piano on it. <laughs> An upright cherry wood piano fell over and took care of my leg in the temple of all places. So you can, uh, you can wonder what my karma was about that. So this piano fell on me and my leg broke. It no longer worked. First time in my life that a part of my body actually broke and didn't function. And I remember uh, being a monk, I was in the monastery when it happened, and I had lots of time to think because I was in a room with no TV, no, no radio. I was on opioids galore, so no reading. <laughs> so I just pretty much thought the best I could about things. And I realized that I wasn't broken. My experience of being me was still completely whole, still completely the same experience. There wasn't a part of me that wasn't working. There wasn't a thing I couldn't think about because I couldn't access it. I was still fully me. And it really brought to light that distinction that my body and me are two different things. My body can be broken. I, I can't be broken. Uh, 
And then this notion that you're watching your thoughts all the time. And I read this fascinating uh, article uh, in Psychiatry Today about three weeks ago, where they say that you make a decision almost three seconds before you become aware of it. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? They can see the decision be made, uh, being made you know, by hooking you up to those lovely helmets, and then you become aware of it about, about three seconds after it's happened. And when you watch your thoughts, you just, you're watching them, right? You're, you're literally reading or listening to your thoughts. If it's a voice, you're hearing your, you talk to yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if, it's, if you're looking at a picture or you're thinking of a temple or thinking of a vacation, you're, you're looking at what's coming up in the mind. So you're separate, even from the mind. You're not in the mind. If you were the mind, you wouldn't be able to do that. How do you know that? It's the same reason that uh, you can't see your face. <laughs> Right? You can't see your face. You've only ever seen a reflection of your face. So when you never, well, I can't say that you never will see a face. Sometimes people have had that experience. But you just kind of go on faith. Swami Vivekananda told a young boy, a six-year-old boy, that came to him and, and, and Swamiji was talking him, to him about God. And the little boy said, oh, why can't I see him? And he said, well, God is like your face. He's so close to you. He's so much your very own that you can't see him. But you know he's there because you see evidence of it all around you. So it's like that. So part of the practice is building that sense of self so that you can build on a faith that there's more to you than what meets the eye, as it were. You can, you can touch the truths and get this notion and see that, that we talk about it like that too. When you talk about thinking, what do you do? You say, I'm reflecting on it. Isn't that an interesting thing? Because the scriptures, uh, the, the old, the Rigveda, the older scriptures talk that 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 consciousness is kind of a light of awareness. That that you exist because the consciousness in me is being reflected back to itself, and so and the mind works because consciousness is being reflected off of the mind. So thou art that. That's that famous uh, statement, Tattvamasi, meaning. You are the divine. You are the dish towel <laughs> in your essence. You are love, you are intelligence, your existence absolute. And so that, that is your true nature. Now, the body isn't any of those things. The body, the body falls away. You know, the body doesn't have an inherent existence. As soon as you go, it drops, goes away. And it changes all the time, right? When you were two, not many of you looked the same mm -hmm. as you do now, I trust. I didn't. <laughs> I behaved the same, but I, <laughs> didn't, I didn't look the same. And so you can know that you're not the body, because the body, almost, almost not a single cell in your body probably is the same today as it was the day you were born. And your mind, good Lord, how many of us have the same mind for even a second in a row? You know, the mind is constantly different and constantly changed. And so these are little clues that you get during your practice. When you, when you quiet down and you begin to observe what is reality? You have to get out of the noise. You have to get away from the distractions. You have to, to put aside the assumptions and actually begin to recognize what are your assumptions. Uh, because the way the world works is that we sort of have, to have this group convention about how things are, which doesn't hold up when you start asking the spiritual questions behind them. What, where am I getting those ideas from? Where, what, what is the notion behind that? you find that it doesn't really function, but we have these conventions that we've bought into, that you, that you are separate from me, that you are your body, you are your mind, and I'm going to talk to your body and mind and treat you like a body and mind. 
And uh, if you take that principle to its nth degree, we become things to each other. We become furniture to each other. You know, our relationships become decoration. Our partners become decoration. And we fall into that, that materialism, uh, which not many people have found a lasting happiness in that, mostly because of this problem of death. <laughs> you know, that seems to take all of it away. Every time we gather enough to be happy with, we have to leave it behind and start all over again. So we are this, we are uh, a spirit, we're a soul, we're, we're, we're something non-material inhabiting a temple, inhabiting a body. And that those who kindle the light of awareness, those who begin to pay attention to the experience, all of this is divine. This moment we've talked about briefly in the first lecture is eternal. This moment that you're experiencing now, 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 never begins and never ends. You know, you can't point at when it begins, you can't point at when it ends, and if you try and define exactly where it is, you'll find that you can't. It just is. It's, it's divine. It is God. And in this moment came all of the scriptures. You know, the sages, when they wrote the scriptures, they didn't just make them up, like, well, let's see, that rhymes with that, we'll use that one. It was a seeing. They, they saw the moment as God. They, they, they recognized that in this moment, heard that by kindling that light of awareness, those very subtle truths, those subtle spaces within. They kindled that awareness, and they could learn directly from the experience of being, directly from the experience of being alive. And that really is a summation or the goal of spiritual practice, is to tune your instrument to the extent where you can hear the beloved in his talk and dance with you, in life and enjoy that company, enjoy that presence. There's a marvelous book, which I'm going to recommend, by, uh, called the, the Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Anybody familiar with that? Mm -hmm. we're, we're going over it on Wednesday mornings, if you want to come next door to the temple. Uh, it's, he's a Catholic monk from the Middle Ages, a very simple guy. He was a cook for the monastery, uh, but had that unitive experience with the beloved, uh, but didn't do any teaching, didn't, didn't tell anybody beyond his circle of friends and his spiritual directors and whatnot. And when he passed away, they collected all of his letters and all of the advice that he had given to friends and seekers that had come to him. And they put them in this little tiny book that is so simple to read and so simple to completely miss <laughs> as you read it. You have to read it and, and reread it each line because it says very simple things, very straightforward things that you'll think, oh yeah, I get that. But then when you do the second level of inquiry, you realize, wow, the implications of that are amazing, are beautiful, because he is talking about kindling that light of awareness. His idea was that he would never forget that he was in the presence of his beloved, that he would never forget that. I find in the Catholic literature, it's very interesting, all the saints speak about the soul as female because Jesus is male. And it's very similar, it's very same in, in the old scriptures of India, in Rindavan, where Krishna uh, lived, everybody in the town, male or female, is considered female. There are no men in Rindavan, because everybody is the, the handmaid of Krishna, you know, the betrothed of Krishna. And in Christianity, all of the saints considered themselves the betrothed to Jesus. That, that in that unit of experience, that there, like in a marriage, the marriage would be consummated, the two would become one. And so St. John of the Cross, when he talks about that, his practice 
which is quite lovely, was about preparing his chamber of the heart for the reception of God when God would come in his grace. And so his practice was to go and to sit in that inner shrine, that inner chamber, and to purify it, to decorate it, to sing there, to, to make everything perfect and wait in that holy waiting for the arrival of the beloved, for him to come and uh, bring you to that unitive experience with, with him. So those who kindle the light of awareness within, they get true light. The sacred flame of your inner shrine is constantly bright. Now I'm going to play with this and, and talk about this being a, a literal thing, that that, that uh, sacred flame, it's what keeps your body at 98.6 degrees, even in the snow. It's what digests your food, what burns up your food in the, in the acid. So that sacrificial flame burns in you all the time. It's your altar to your beloved. Everything that you put on that altar is offered to God. Everything that you look at, everything that you say, everything that you hear, everything that you see, everything that you eat, all of it is an offering to the beloved. And it goes on to that, sac that sacrificial fire and it burns, it becomes a part of you, and it becomes your prayer. It becomes your prayer, your life, which is acted from the things that you put on that flame. As they get burned up, you are living your prayer. Everything that you do is a prayer to God. Everything that you say is a prayer to God. Everything that you think is a prayer to God. Everything that you allow to yourself to listen to or to watch is a prayer to the beloved. So kindling that light of awareness stretches into that area as well, to become aware of what you're praying for so that you don't get surprised by the answers. <laughs> so many of us, life goes on, we're just like, ah, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening to me? We're not listening to our prayer. You know, we think, uh, I grew up here that God said no sometimes, and sometimes he said yes. And I was like, well, gosh, people who don't pray at all seem to be in the same condition that I'm in, praying all the time. So it doesn't seem to have any effect, you know, that, that blasphemous mind of a 13-year-old, you know, in church. Well, I don't think it matters. So becoming aware of what you're praying for, because in prayer, you'll, you'll pray for something. I always think about name and fame, because when I was a teenager, I was going to become a famous singer. I, <laughs> I used to turn on my Donny Osmond album and turn the desk lamp around on my face and grab my highlighter marker and just, you know, rip into puppy love. Sure that one day all of you would be listening to me do my, my, my rendition of puppy love. Uh, fortunately for all of us, that has not happened. But, <laughs> that's true. We're listening to mother <laughs> through this mistake. Of what <laughs> but that idea that, that, that becoming aware of these prayers that, that you're living so that you can focus and get that one essential thing in life, which is that unitive experience with your beloved, so that you can walk through a day and not mistake it for just random events some good, some bad, but that you can see all of it motivated by the love of your beloved for your good, for your benefit, so that you can see the truth of that scripture in the Christian Bible that says, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's one of the fundamental things that I hold on to for my own faith, is insisting on that perspective for every moment of my life, so that when the bad things happen, I don't interpret them as bad. I look at them, and as long as I see them as bad, I realize I haven't understood them yet. 
And so I keep processing them and keep processing them, trying to change my perspective until I can see that that has been done for my benefit and find out what that benefit is and make sure that I don't not learn the lesson you know, so that I can be changed to be ever closer and to be ever uh, purer in my experience of that, that unity. He says that this unity, the experience of unity, is the fulfillment of human endeavor. So people often say, well, life's purpose is just whatever you make it. Well, it can. It can, for sure. You can live life that way. It's rather random, but you can do it. You know, and if that works for you, in Vedanta, if it's working for you, we're not, we're not interested in changing it. You run with that. And when it stops working for you, or when you want more, or when you start to wonder if that's it, then somebody might have something to add to it. So if, something, if, you're, if what's going on for you is working for you and making things happen for you, stick with it. But if you have nagging things inside that think, oh, there's got to be more than a cubicle job, you know, <laughs> there's got to be something more important, uh, then that's when, that's when God really steps forward. You know, the, the, the scriptures talk about, or uh, Sri Ramakrishna talks about, you know, the, the divine mother, God is mother, is letting all of her children play. And as long as the kids are all happy just playing, she goes on and does whatever she's doing. She's not, she doesn't get too worried about it. But when one of the kids cries out, ah, Mom, then mother comes running and then ministers and takes care of the child. And so that's the way our life is. If, if you're going on, you know, you're not praying, not really doing anything spiritually, but you're just going on, you're playing, you're not really crying out, you're not discontent, you're not wondering if there's more, then you can do that. You can just kind of hang out and, and buzz through life that way. But if you want God, crawl out. You know, if, if, that, if that emptiness becomes too much inside, or if the work of distraction becomes too much, which is what happened to me. I was living quite an enjoyable life in San Francisco in the 90s and uh, had all my fun going on and uh, turned 35 and sort of realized that was very young compared to where I'm at now. <laughs> But I kind of realized, wow, I'm, I'm not going to have the energy to maintain this for very much longer. You know, I can't really stay out until 2 in the morning and then be at work by 8 the next morning uh, very often. And then what am I going to do? Because these are the things that make me happy. These are the things that keep me energized. And so when you come to those places where life takes away something that you thought was important to you and you're left without it, that's not a mistake. That's not the downside of growing old. That's a direct favor done to you by your beloved in the hopes of getting you to set down your toys for a moment and call out for mother. Make that cry for that essence of what you are and who you are. And this experience of unity, when you merge in that bliss that we talked about, have those experiences, those ecstatic experiences of, of existence, of being, that's the point of being alive. That's the point of the human life, to experience your beloved as, as mother, father, brother, sister, friend, lover, hero, as you want, as you, as you, or all of them in one, to experience that. And very different from our modern experience of religion in general, in, in general, I can't, you can't really generalize fairly in anything, but religion has become so much about what do you believe? Uh, you know, what are your doctrines? What are your uh, dogmas? And uh, in the Vedanta, that's, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. The question in Vedanta is, are you unselfish? Are you loving? To the degree that you're unselfish, to that degree, you're spiritual. 
to the degree that you're loving, to that degree you know what you're talking about in spiritual life. So those are our two test questions. What you believe, what you think, what your philosophy is, what thought castles you've erected in your mind around your philosophies, those are all for you. Those are, those are for you. But when it comes down to spiritual life, only two things uh, are, are measures of where you stand. And that's your level of unselfishness and your level of loving. And of course, all of us think that we're unselfish and all of us think that we're very loving. So uh, get somebody else to go ask your friends. <laughs> Find out what you're known for. All right, Vivekananda, he was that, uh, uh, that monk who, he sort of dressed like this. He, he kind of went out on his own a little bit too in the way he dressed. But he came here in 1893 to talk at the Parliament of Religions. And he says that through faithful practice, layer after layer of the mind opens before us and each reveals new facts to us. We see, as it were, new worlds created before us. New powers are put into our hands. But we must not stop by the way or allow ourselves to be dazzled by these beads of glass when the mine of diamonds lies before us. So it's keeping that focus. Don't become content. You know, don't, don't reach a plateau. I go to church two, three times a week. I read my Bible for 10 minutes every morning with my cup of coffee, and I've been doing that for 40 years. But you've been in the same space for 40 years. You know, the experience of reading that Bible is pretty much the same today as when you started. Good habits, great things to do, but there's, there's, there's more for you. There's more ahead. And he's saying, don't become, dis don't become content. Don't become lazy. Always know that there is this diamond mind. There is this experience of God that is the purpose of your life that is available to you and can be had by you and has had been had by thousands, tens of thousands of sages and saints and spiritual seekers in the past, many of whom uh, have made movies, <laughs> written books, written poetry that you can access all of this in. So we have to build our lives on this faith that this diamond mind lays ahead. And faith is always a very interesting thing because I, I, I was taught, at least growing up, that faith was this notion of believing something with no evidence. <laughs> Who thinks that's great? <laughs> Even as a kid, I could think, I really don't want to be that kind of person. You're, you're completely unhinged at that point. You could believe anything if you believe something with no evidence for it. So what is faith? Let's change that definition a little bit. We're going to go to a disciple of Swami Vivekananda, and he writes this about faith. He says, faith does not mean, now this gets quite caught up, so kind of try and flow with it. These, he uses big words and very long sentences, Victorian English. He says, faith does not mean a sudden effervescence of sentimentalism or a dazzling display of intellectual feet Faith has no concern with these passing shadows, which vanish away before the tremendous facts of life. It stands unmoved in the innermost depth of the heart as the one vital principle of all thought and action. In the midst of the varying destinies of earthly existence, it is, and here he's going to define it for us, it is the intuitive perception of an eternal relation with something which, by its overwhelming prominence, throws into shade 
the ever-vanishing shows of the world and draws us away from it, diversify, from its diversified occupations to a close touch with this permanent reality. <laughs> there you go, simple. Can you repeat that? I'm going to read it again, and I'll, I'll try, and it, the phrasing is so important for understanding it, and I always mess it up. I'll try it again here. Faith does not mean a sudden effervescence of sentimentalism. So it's not just, it's not just a feeling, you know, getting worked up about something that you believe, fantasizing about a love, or fantasizing about a heaven, or fantasizing about, it's not that. It's not the things that stir up the inside into sentimental feelings of love and warmth and, uh, and uh, you know, happy bunnies. That there's something more to it. It's not a dazzling display of intellectual feat. So it's not the dogmas and doctrines that you've managed to compile. It's not the huge tower of philosophy that you've managed to build. It says faith has no concern with these passing shadows which vanish away before the tremendous facts of life. So there's something which makes this world look like a vanishing act, you know, when you pay attention. I remember in San Francisco going for a hike one afternoon, as I often did, and I sat on a hill uh, overlooking Ghirardelli Square. So if you know San Francisco, I'm in North Beach on the hill. There's a park up there. And I'm looking over this town. And I've lived in the town for 20-something years at that point. And I realize that I'm looking at a chocolate factory that's not a chocolate factory. I'm looking at a prison that's not a prison. I'm looking at a clipper ship that's not a clipper ship. I'm looking at a fisherman's wharf that's not a fisherman's wharf. And it starts to make me feel very odd. Like, I, what, what's real? <laughs> Why are people here? You know, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing here. And then I began to think about that. I thought, what is it that makes San Francisco San Francisco? Because in the 10 years that I lived on Union Street, almost every business changed at least once in that 10 years, almost all of it. And certainly I had moved several times in my 27 years in town, had lived in different places. What is it that makes San Francisco San Francisco? Does it actually even exist? There are, there, there, you know, every generation, all new people move through there, all new businesses move through there, you know, buildings get replaced, things get changed, new people are in charge. And yet there's this idea of, of an enduring San Francisco. And that's the part of us that has to wake up, that begins to see that all of this is fleeting, it's changing, and our perception of it as being something stable and permanent is not true, is not real, that we have to actually stop thinking at a certain point in order to maintain that illusion of it being real. Because we'll see that in fact it's not. So it's faith is, is encountering that. Okay, there's something permanent. How do you know that? Because you can see that it's not impermanent. Now, what do I mean by that? If you're in an elevator and the elevator's going up, there's no windows. So when I was a kid, elevators were very magical. I didn't understand what was happening. This ginormous door would slide open, you know, in the most threatening of ways. It was just so heavy and bulky. And you would jump in that little box, right? That door would close, and you'd push the button. And you'd stand there, you'd feel some weird vibrations and whatnot, and then the door would open and you'd be in a totally different place. I was like, oh my God, that's so amazing. I had no idea what had just happened. Because I was part of the system. See, I was in the elevator, moving with the elevator, so I had no notion of change. If you are, not, if you are within a system, you cannot see its change. 
If you're in the car and you're reading a book and you're driving along, you can't see the change. You need a relative point. That's why God has to be absolute and unchanging. Because if God was not changing, if he was part of the relative, if you were part of the relative, you could find, you could know nothing. Nothing could be known. Because there would be no point from which everything else could be measured. Do you get that point? So you are, you are not part of this changing world because you can see all of the change. If you were the body, you would be changing with it. You would not be aware of its constant change. If you were the mind, you would not be aware of its constant changing. But because you are a watcher of mind and you are in a place of the absolute, the unchanging, you see the changing mind. Because you're outside of the system of this world, you see everything changing. You can see it even how comfortably we sit in this room. I have a fun lecture that I do sometimes about becoming aware of all the assumptions that we make. That right now we think that we're sitting in a very safe environment, that we're not moving, everything is stable. But in fact, we are hurtling through space at several hundred thousand miles an hour, spinning on a globe at some 180,000 miles an hour. I forgot all the numbers. You know, around, spinning on its axis crazily, and then that spinning ball on its axis is spinning around a sun at some other ungodly amount of speed, and that that whole solar system itself is spinning at some unknown speed around a center of a galaxy, and that center of the galaxy apparently is shooting off into nowhere at some un unimaginable speed to, to uh, away from its big bang, big bang origin, at least according to some ideas. And yet here we sit. <laughs> No, no worries at all. We have no idea where we're going at speeds we can't even comprehend, able to hit any number of things at any moment that we wouldn't even know were there. We're only just starting to become aware of those problems, and yet we just don't think about it, right? So that's a perfect example of that, that unawareness, of that going to sleep so that everything seems fine. But what happens is we keep doing that until our life becomes mundane. <laughs> we keep doing that till, until we're able to get bored. That that's a completely unnatural thing for us to be bored or for us to, 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 to feel as if life is mundane, as if we know what's coming. That's a complete lack of understanding and awareness of the reality in any mode. I remember going uh, in 1985, it was the height of the AIDS crisis in San Francisco. 12,000 people died that year from AIDS. And I was going down to the AIDS ward in General Hospital just to visit uh, the patients down there with a, a very crazy friend of mine uh, who used to give out stuffed animals to, to all the patients. And uh, one day the elevator door opened and I stepped out of the elevator and the three, all three of the nurses behind the station there looked up and, and said, Dave, what, what are you doing out here? <laughs> I was like, I'm not Dave. You're not Dave. I was like, no, no, my name is Vance. Before I was Chid Brahmananda, I was Vance, which was much easier. And uh, they said, that's crazy. And they took me over to, to one of the rooms, and laying there in the bed was me. Even I was like, wow, you look just like I do. And when I walked in the room, he looked at me. I was like, wow, you look just like I do. It was a crazy feeling. And, and what happened because of that was an intimacy, an, an immediate friendship, an immediate bonding. And I was able to have a conversation with him, a person who was dying, who was in advanced stages. They didn't think he was going to be there for more than two weeks. And he was my age, 27, you know. And I was sitting there, actually I don't know if that math works, I was in my early 20s. 
we were sitting there on the fo- at the foot of his bed, and I, I told him, I, I, I said, Dave, I said, wow. I said, I, you know, this kind of puts me in your position. I kind of see myself laying in bed there, you know, and you told me that you only have two weeks to live. I said, well, all I can feel inside is terror, fear. I said, that's, that seems horrifying to me. How, do you, how are you dealing with it? How come you were smiling when I walked in the room? How come this doesn't seem horrible to you? And he told me something so beautiful that I've held on to it all these years, and they are going to be my thoughts on my deathbed. He said, he said, Vance, you know, I was afraid. I've, I've been sick now for over a year. I was terrified. I've been terrified. But he said, you know, laying here and thinking about it all day long, I came to realize that I'm about to go on my first adventure. He says, everything else in my life, I've kind of known what was coming. You know, even if I never been to a city before, I knew it was a city, (laughs) that things would follow rules. He says, for the first time, I'm going to do something and go someplace that I know nothing about. And he said, I am going on my first real adventure. And he says, it's changed to excitement. I'm looking forward to this. I can't wait to see something different, something new, something amazing. And I thought, I love that. I love that attitude. And that is what life is. You see, we've accepted so many conventions that we all think we know where we're going. We all think that we know what's next. We get up in the morning and the day just sort of, there it is, you know, I'll do this, this, that, and then I'll be finished and come back to bed again. And we've settled for that because we've turned off that light of awareness. We've turned off that, that, that probing into the possibilities. You know, even at, at my age, even at your age, life is infinite, full of possibility. And those possibilities now are inward. They're not outward anymore. We don't have the energy to go hiking to the top of the mountains and back. We don't have the time or the willpower, you know, to fly off to Paris for lunch. It's like now life is becoming about the interior space that divinity that's within you, that, that, that place that has made you happy, that has given you love and had you experience joy, and had you experience excitement, all of that which came from in you is now yours to, to experience. The divine father or mother has begun to take away all of the things from the external world. He does that for all of us as we age. All of those things that we used to run and spend our time in become less and less available. And we, some of us will end up sitting in a single chair, unable to move, unable to go anywhere. I've seen it many times with these old monks in the monasteries coming to that point in life. And if you haven't built this inner shrine, if you haven't found that all of your joy was coming from a place inside and only reflecting off of the things outside, if you don't touch that, if you don't find that, if you don't learn to, to sit in that space, then life seems like a loss. Old age seems like a diminishing, like a falling away, like a closing down. But old age is the portal. It's an opening. It's, it's, it's God doing you the biggest favor of your life, showing you that all of these things that you depended on weren't real. Now it's time to find the real. Find me, he says, she says. Touch me. See this love that's infinite within you. See this intelligence. Experience this existence in all of its myriad of amazing qualities but find that unchanging space 
So faith is knowing that there is this space within. It's knowing that you are that unchanging self that's outside the system, that you're not this aging body. You're not this aging mind. You're not these relationships of family which seem ever more, tenu more tenuous and farther away. You know, you are not those things and you are not defined by those things. You are not of a certain gender. You are not of a certain age. You are not of a certain nationality. You are infinite. You are pure. You are beloved of the divine. You are his mark of love in this manifestation, in this universe. You're his mark of intelligence. He stamped that image at your very core for you to find, for you to look for. So in those final days when you can't do any of your favorite things and you can't eat any of your favorite foods and you can't go to any of your favorite places and all of your favorite people are elsewhere, God is taking them all to that space so that you can find that stamp of his image that is hidden in the heart, that has reflected love off of all of those things. And you mistook the object for being the source of those things. You see, you mistook the objects of the world for being the things that brought you happiness. But all they did was reflect back to you that love inside. How do you know that? That's that awareness practice. If your wife really was the most beautiful woman in the world, if your husband really was the most handsome man in the world, we would all be in love with them. But we're not all in love with them. Why? Because they're not the source of your love for them. They're reflecting back something divine to you. And that love inside is being kindled. Your awareness is being drawn to love for the first time. You're seeing it because something in them is reminding you of the divinity within you. And by becoming sensitive to that kind of reflection, becoming sensitive to that existence of yourself as love being manifested in the world, is what this practice is about. This is where we're going. Vivekananda goes on to say, whatever you dream and think of, you create. If it is hell, you die and see hell. If it is evil and Satan, you get a Satan. If ghosts, you get ghosts. Whatever you think, that you become. If you have to think, think good thoughts. Think great thoughts. Whatever you think, you become. You see that in this world. If you go back, what, 100 years from now, where would we be sitting right now? Probably in the woods, right? None of this was here. So how did this get here? Somebody thought about it. It occurred to somebody, hey, that would be a great place to put Clubhouse One <laughs> right there. And so then what did they do? Then once they had the thought, they, they, they put that power of I on it, the I am, to bring it into existence. And its first journey outside of the mind from the thought world to the manifested world is a big piece of paper. We'll draw a big room. We'll put, we'll put three rooms and we'll name them and we'll move everybody from one to one week after week and they'll never know where they are. It'll be great. It'll be fantastic. And so now we're sitting in somebody's idea. We're sitting in something that existed in imagination because that's what happens in the world. People imagine things and then they manifest them. So know that and become in charge. Put yourself in charge of what you imagine. You know, my mother and I have had this ongoing argument now for, well, I can't say 54 years because the first two years I couldn't say anything. So 52 years we've been arguing about the fact that she's constantly worried. She had three boys, which I don't know why God did that to her. She had three boys. 
And we were all hellions. You know, we all, we'd go, we'd go hiking, and all of us would be teetering over the edges, you know, trying to drop rocks to see how far they would go. My brother would be falling in a cactus. My other brother would be just running randomly off somewhere. And my mother was always imagining the worst. You know, we'd come within 10 feet of a cliff, and in her mind, we had already fallen off of it. You know, you get into an airplane, she won't fly nowadays. She's going to hate me telling all her secrets like this. She, she won't get in a plane. She's sure it's going to blow up, that somebody's going to hijack it, it's going to fly into a building, so she won't even get into it. And so I've had this argument. I'm like, Ma, if you're going to imagine a world, if you're going to imagine the future, why not imagine a good one? Why not imagine that the plane doesn't blow up? Why not imagine that I don't fall off the cliff? Why not imagine that you're happy? Why not imagine that your life is fulfilling? Why not imagine that God loves you? Why not imagine that you love everyone? Why not imagine that you've never experienced anger? Why not imagine that your true nature is love? Imagine that your true nature is intelligent. Imagine that your value comes from that stamp of the beloved, which is unmovable, unremovable, unchangeable in you. Why not know that you are worth something because of that and that alone? That's faith. That's the gem of our practice. That's the thing that we're polishing so that it can inspire us to do great things from moment to moment. You know, remember we read two weeks ago from the, the, the uh, uh, what was her name, the Peace Pilgrim. How does she said, she said, I see each moment as an opportunity for service. She realized her nature. She realized what having the image of God as her being meant. It meant that she stood there waiting to manifest love, looking, just waiting for the opportunity, maybe looking for the opportunity. There's probably not much need to look for it. They're everywhere, constantly. And if you start living in that space, imagining those things, being on the lookout for those things, imagining that your day is a dance with the divine and not just a mundane series of events and activities, that your day is a dance, and it's a dance with your highest ideal of love your highest ideal of intimacy, your highest ideal of fulfillment, then that will manifest for you, little by little. Might not happen a week, it might. It might not happen in two weeks, it might. Imagine the highest and the greatest and watch it unfold in front of you. Anything that we do ourselves, that is the only thing we do. Anything that is done for us by another can never be ours. You cannot learn spiritual truth from my lectures. If you have learned anything, I was only the spark that brought it out, made it flash. That is all the prophets and teachers can do. All this running after help is foolishness. Everything necessary is within you. Everything is there. We've already, even just three lectures, have covered everything that you need to know to find the beloved, to touch God. Now it's up to you. What will you do with it? What will you enact in it? Will you spend that time? I want to talk here. I have no idea what time it is. Oh, no. Oh, it's 11 o'clock. We're going till noon, right? <laughs> he, says, he says, we must become thinkers. Every birth is painful. We must get out of materialism. My mother would not let us get out of her clutches. Nevertheless, we must try. This struggle is all the worship there is. All of the rest is just a shadow. You are the personal God. Just now I am worshiping you. 
This is the greatest prayer. Worship the whole world in that sense by serving it. This standing on a high platform, I know, does not appear like worship. But if it is service, it is worship. That's how you worship your beloved. You can go to a church. That's a nice way to play with the symbols. Vivekananda says it's nice to be born in a church, but don't die in one. Meaning let that church should be a seed for something much bigger than a building, much bigger than an organization or an institution. It's, it's life itself. It's you itself. So to come to this place so that you are worshiping the beloved in everything that you do, you're doing that dance, and you're doing the dance purposefully and consciously and with awareness and with mindfulness. And because of that, you're pouring that love. You're just pouring it out in every opportunity. So how are we going to touch this in the next three minutes? <laughs> That's too bad because I have some poems I wanted to read. Uh, th th these elements of your time and your practice. Practice should be every day. I'm going to get down to nuts and bolts now. No more philosophy, no more theory. These are, these are the things for creating a healthy practice. It should be every day, and it should be a minimum of twice a day, well, at least once in the morning and once at night. Uh, the sages say that the best time is the convergence of day and night. So like when the sun is coming up, it's the perfect time. He says the world is still and waiting and, and anticipating at that time. And since everybody's in that space, your mind easily goes to that contemplation. And then the twilight in the evening when the sun is setting, the world comes to a quiet space. So he says those two times are the best times. Now you can choose anything available to you, but choose a time. The amount of time doesn't matter. If you, like when I started, I love to tell people this because people don't believe it. When I started, for my first year of spiritual practice, my big goal was two minutes twice a day. That was it. But it was at the exact same time, the exact same place. All right, you should have a space in your home that is only used for your practice. Now, why is that important? Because your mind reacts to habit. Right? It reacts to habit. And if you only sit in that chair to meditate, when you sit down in that chair, the mind will instantly take the message, it's time for meditation. And you need as many of those helps as possible. <laughs> use incense. That's why they use incense. Incense is a great reminder for the mind. We'll light it and put it there. When the mind smells that and sits in the chair, now it knows from two different directions. Ah, it's time for meditation. Light a candle. Now you've got the eyes involved. Like candles telling me time for meditation, the smell telling me for meditation, my chair telling me it's time for meditation. All the help in the world to bring your mind to a quiet and receptive space where you can send out that awareness and experience God. Not look for God. In your meditation, you're not, in your practice, you're not trying to attain something. You have everything already. You have to recognize it. You have to see it for what it is and not what you thought it is, what you think it is. Stop the thinking. It's not a time to cognate. Cog cognate? It's not a time to sit there and analyze. Not for that. It's a time of being. Shut the mind down as much as you can and let what is be revealed. A lot of people think that if you sit and meditate and do nothing, that it's just you're going to be a log. You're going to be inert. Nothing's going to happen. That would be true if you were a piece of dirt in your essence, if you were a rock in your essence. But you're not. You're a stamp of the divine. You're the image of the beloved. And what happens when the ego starts doing nothing is that finally that stamp, that image, can manifest. And you can hear it and be inspired to act accordingly. So you want a quiet space to sit. 
a presence. All you're doing is getting a spiritual suntan, as it were. You're putting yourself in the presence of the divine, however you want to define that, it, him, her, he, she, however you want to see that. Put yourself in that presence like you sit in the sun and let that presence of your highest ideal change you, give you that tan. You don't have to do it yourself. You don't have to accomplish anything. You know, when you're doing that tan, you're not sitting there, okay, we need more in sector four on the forearm. Send three more units of melatonin to my fingers. They're burning. Not like that, right? You just lay there. Oh, oh this is great. I love it. That's exactly what, what spiritual practice is. It's laying in the presence of the divine, just being, oh, I love this. This is awesome. <laughs> this love waking up, this recognition of the, the positiveness of life, the infinite nature of being, the depth of experience. It's opening up to that. So you want the same time, twice a day if you can, the same space you know, there. Have a little shrine in front of you. You can put anything or nothing on it. You know, if you want to worship God as the formless, then put nothing on it. <laughs> put a flame on it if you want an idea of something to focus on. You know, if you have if you have an ideal, if you want a picture of Jesus, or you want a picture of Buddha, or a picture of Krishna, you know, if that's your highest ideal of love, or if none of those are your highest ideal of love, it's your grandson, it's your husband, it's your wife, then put their picture there. And worship the love in that picture, not the person not the image. Worship through the picture. You see, there's this misunderstanding about Vedanta, about Hinduism in particular. Everybody says it's a multi-polytheistic religion. It's not and never has been. There's a single God, and he manifests in a million faces. 33 million was the last count I heard by some scholar. The God has 33 million faces, but it's one God. And so when you worship a shrine, when you go into a shrine to worship, the, the ignorant, the beginner, yes, he worships the image itself because he just doesn't know yet, hasn't touched anything beyond that. But the ideal is to worship through the image. Worship God through the image. And once you get that practice going through an image or through a picture in a concentrated, focused way for those two minutes in the morning, then it becomes a habit that starts to affect your life. And you begin to worship God through cashiers and through clerks and through policemen and through husbands and through children. You begin to see him everywhere. You can't, you can't not see him. Suddenly you awaken to it. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this God that you couldn't see is manifesting everywhere. Why? Because God is love. God is love. And if you can't see him, you're not manifesting enough love in your life. Go do some kind acts of service and you'll be amazed to see God manifest and appear to feel the inspiration of his presence well up inside with every good deed, with every act of worship that you manage to do. And suddenly this invisible God that people wonder about his existence or her existence becomes the only real thing in your life, becomes a beautiful welling up of love that fills your inner world to overflowing and, and then affects the outside world because what you think is what you become. What you know is what you see. And so the practice is being dedicated to that. Sit with your beloved. Enjoy your time with your beloved. Is it okay if I just quickly read at least one of my poems here? If anybody has to go, you can do it. You get a free pass. You can go. I have, I have several poems here, but there's one uh, that is from uh, 
Rabia. She's an uh, Islamic uh, Sufi mystic from the 8th century. And I love this one because this one, simple as it is, silly as it is, had the most profound change in my spiritual practice. Rabia says, would you come if someone called you by the wrong name? I wept because for years he did not enter my arms. Then one night I was told a secret. Perhaps the name you call God is not really his. Maybe it's just an alias. I thought about it, and I came up with a pet name for my beloved that I never mentioned to anyone else. All I can say is that it works. How many of us have a pet name for God? We have pet names for almost every other person that we love, right? You know, some pretty hilarious ones. My little schnoodle pumps, you know. <laughs> Han, I can still hear my grandfather yelling that from the other room. Han! <laughs> These names that we have for those things, those people that we love dearly. First thing to do in your shrine, if you're creating a shrine for the first time, or just go and sit there and think, beloved, what, what shall I call you? What name shall I call you? And just sit there until it arises, and then use that name. I got my name from my best friend, uh, Bill. <laughs> he had just started coming to a, going to a temple in San Diego. I lived in San Francisco. And uh, in, in, in the tradition of Sri Ramakrishna, he's got many names. One of them is Sri Ramakrishna. Another one is Takur. T-H-A-K-U-R, I mean, it means dad or, or father, you know, uh, it's a very warm nickname. And so he had gone to a lecture that Sunday, and he called me afterwards because he was confused. He says, you know, I've been going here for a year, and I've heard these lectures, and I, I understood everything. Today I went, and they talked about some guy that I'd never heard of before. Who is this Tucker? You know, who's Tucker? And I just busted out laughing, you know, Tucker, I love that name. It reminds me of Huckleberry Finn somehow. And he had thought, he had misheard Takur, the Bengali word or Sanskrit word, I don't even know, meaning for father, for God. He had misunderstood it as Tucker. And when I sat in the shrine that night, I just kept teasing God by calling him Tucker. You know, and just, just mischievously, instead of God or, you know, your highness or some of these big names that we have for God. It became so personal. It became so real to me. It became so fun for me. And it changed the nature of my practice ever since. That now I flirt with God all the time. I'm mischievous all the time. I am always teasing him and always pretending things and always having conversations. You know, something falls on the floor. I've always got some witty little thing to say about it, you know, for him. It's changed the nature of it. And so like Rabia, break the rules, push out, this practice does not come out of a book. Your spiritual life does not come out of a book. It does not come from somebody else's tradition. It does not come from your parents. It comes from here. Make it your own. Experiment with it. If you do something wrong, just like your mother, God will give you a little tap. You'll know. If, you make a, if you're too presumptuous, I remember one time sitting on the shrine. <laughs> Sitting there, I was cleaning it, and I just decided to sit down next to it. And as soon as I did it, I felt it. Uh-uh, that's too much. That's too much. Not time for that yet. Go back and sit on the floor. You know, you'll know. But push, 
experiment, explore, find out what your relationship with God is, with this divinity. It's everywhere around you. He's in you. He is you. You know, your life is actually intended to be his life. But you've created a little gopher of an ego that's constantly jumping up and grabbing the experiences for itself. Ooh, I like that one. Ooh, I like that one. And you hold it. Now what we've got to do initially is grab it, say, oh, I like that, but then immediately hand it off and realize, oops, I took that from you, Lord. This is your life. This is your experience. This is your manifestation. I'm an observer. I get to enjoy it for free. But you are the experiencer. You are that who's living my life. So enjoy that company. I'm going to read one more here. Laughter came from every brick. This is from Teresa uh, uh, of Avila, I believe. Just these two words he spoke, they changed my life. Enjoy me. What a burden I thought I had to carry, a crucifix as he did. Love once said to me, I know a song, would you like to hear it? And laughter came from every brick in the street and from every pore in the sky. After a night of prayer, he changed my life when he sang, enjoy me. Enjoy God. You know, religion, your religion, was not meant to prevent you from enjoying the world. It feels like that, right? You can't do this, you can't do that, don't go there, don't hang out with those people, don't do this, don't say that. Not what it's about at all. Utterly not that. It's about enjoying the beloved. Religion is not to forbid enjoying the world, it's to teach you how to enjoy the world so that you don't get caught in the world. So that when you're on your last days, you don't feel like you're losing everything, but you realize that you've had everything and, it will, and, 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 and that everything is you. It's your nature. And it gets to go with you. <laughs> forever, forever and ever. So there's several more sh more poems that we could go over, but I'm going to leave you with that. Unless unless you want another one. Do you want another one? Yes. All right. This is an interesting. Let me see here. Teresa of Avila, another one. On the words, I am for my beloved. Already, I gave myself completely and have changed in such a way that my beloved is for me, and I am for my beloved. When the gentle hunter shot me and left me in all my weakness in the arms of love, my soul fell, and being charged with new life, I have changed in such a way that my beloved is for me, and I am for my beloved. He pierced me with an arrow, laced with the herbs of love, and my soul became one with her creator. I no longer want another love, since I have given myself to God, that my beloved is for me, and I am for my beloved. You know, that, that repeated stanza, the beloved is for me, that means everything that you want, everything that, that you, the selfish things that, when we step into the senses and we see all of those wonderful, bright, shining, flickering things. We think that those are what we want. You see, you're in a marriage with this beloved, and it's a perfect marriage, which means what? The perfect marriage is described in the Bible anyway, is that the wife's body belongs to the husband, and the husband's body belongs to the wife. And it's no longer, I, as part of that partnership, 
I don't worry about myself, I worry about you, and I count on you playing your part to worry about me. So that we, do a, we each take care of each other, and we make sure that that's our only focus. I take care of you, I take care of you. And if things are healthy and going right, the partner is taking care of you and anticipating your needs and trying to, to, to hold you up and to make the compromises first for your sake so that you both are, are being taken care of. You know that, that how many times through so many churches I've heard that same thing that in heaven, you know, everybody's, that heaven and hell are the same place, that there's this big giant banquet table and everybody's sitting around but all the forks are like a yard and a half long, you know. And in hell, everybody's starving to death because they can't get that food into their mouth because the fork's too long. They can't get it to their mouth. But in heaven, everybody's fat and joyful because they're all taking that same fork and feeding each other with it, you know. So this is how that relationship with God works. At the beginning, it's selfish. At the beginning, you try, you know, feed yourself with God. But after a while, you give up, like, like Teresa here, and you start living for God. You start living for his encouragement, for his joy, for his manifestation, for her love. You start living according to that will. Why? In the, in the, in the scriptures, it's everywhere. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've, I've so taken that idea of my beloved and so given myself over to the service. And what about me? That's not my concern. That's his concern. He takes care of me. I, I worship him. I give to him so that that relationship with the divine becomes selfless. And that's how we get the ego small enough to lift it and flick it off with our finger when we're done with it and have that unitive experience, that fulfillment of our life, where we have a catch a glimpse, a flicker of that oneness with infinite love, with infinite intelligence for an eternity. My favorite, so my favorite line in, the, uh, in, in uh, that song, uh, Amazing Grace, you know that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing your praise than when we first begun. You know, this is an eternal relationship. It's actually outside time. Whenever I thought, one of my girlfriends in high school became a Christian, and then she immediately didn't. <laughs> like, she, she went, she got baptized, and then two days later she told me, oh, that was a big mistake, I'm not going to do it. And uh, her thing was, uh, she said, she thought, she said, I thought about it, and all this talk about sitting there with angels and instruments and harps around some big thing and worshiping God forever. She's like, I couldn't do that forever. I'm sure after a week or two, I'd be bored sick. <laughs> Eternity is not forever in our sense. Eternity is transcended to time, outside of time. You know, if you have ever had those moments where you, where you're enjoying something so much and you come to and you look and an hour has passed you're like oh my god where did the time go right that's eternity that's how eternity is experienced it's without time without change just a constant steady unending unending knowing of infinite love you know one of the, one of the great statements of swami brahmananda he said that uh, spiritual life begins at nirvikalpa samadhi now, i just threw out a big word nobody knows okay. Nirvikalpa Samadhi is that unitive experience, that absolute oneness with love, with the divine. And he says, when you, most of us in this world think that that's the height of spiritual life, to have that unitive experience. But we always have to remember love is infinite, God is infinite. You will never, ever absorb all of the love that's coming to you. And so for eternity, even beyond the unity that you have, even in that unity, 
there's a continual growing, a continual expansion, ever more finding out what love is, what its qualities are, how its manifestations are, what its nature is. For all of eternity, you will be full and fuller and fuller and always experiencing greater, higher, beautiful things, transcending even experience. We can't even talk about those things. But the sages who have been there said it's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. That which you think is the highest is only the beginning of a wonder. So there's many, 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 many poems. I do want to read one last one by Hafiz, and then I promise I will shut up. This one's called Where Dolphins Dance. Again, the work starts as soon as you open your eyes in the morning. Hopefully you got some good rest last night. Why go into the city or the fields without first kissing the friend who always stands at your door? It only takes a second. Habits are human nature. Why not create some that will mint gold? Your arms are violin bows, always moving. I have become very conscious upon whom we all play. Thus my eyes have filled with warm, soft oceans of divine music where jeweled dolphins dance and then leap into this world. God manifesting, jeweled dolphins leaping into this world. So create some habits that mint gold. Spend time with God consciously with an effort to expose yourself to the beloved twice a day. If it's a difficult thing, just make it two minutes. Just for two minutes, sit down and say, okay, God, I'm doing this for two minutes. I'm just going to sit here and look at this picture and think of you for two minutes. Okay, minute and a half. All right. All right, well, got to go. Finished. But you get your two minutes. Why? Because I promise you, God is like a, the camel in the tent story. You've heard that story? Yeah. Yeah, the camel, you know, is supposed to stay outside the tent, right? But it's freezing cold out there. So you let him put his nose in the tent and then pushes his head in there, you know, then his neck. And pretty soon he's in the tent and you're the one outside, all right? <laughs> that's, that's the nature of the divine, the nature of love. If you give God that two minutes twice a day, he will move in and fill your life, fill your experience of living. All right, with all of that, I leave you.